For me, the standout song for On Through the Night would probably be Wasted because of where it came from. It's not just the three minutes that you hear. It's the fact that I, I still remember to this day Steve Clark being late as he always, well, he, actually, that wasn't unusual, but he was late to rehearsals, and you could hear his clogs coming up these steel stairs at this factory where we were rehearsing. And he slammed the door open, and before we could all go, hell, have you been? He went, and he gets his guitar out, and he stands like a rock star, and he played the riff to Wasted. And we all just drop-jawed right there. Wow. It's okay, you're okay, you're, you're excused, this one. And we started writing that song that night, and we had it done, finished. So it came from a very honest, excitable spot in our youth, if you like. And when we come to do it, even now with a totally different lineup, you know, with two different guitarists playing it, when we do that song, it's, it has a, a vibe to it. There's something about the riff, the way that the song is constructed, that it's just honest and simple and was very representative of what, what we were trying to do. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Sonny, it's a new year, which means it's a new album review series. So we had so much fun with the Van Halen album review last year, we decided let's pick a new band and let's do 12 studio albums throughout the entire year of 2022 and invite some of our friends to come on and review the albums with us. What do we got this year? Who's the lucky band this year? Well, we went, we thought about a lot of bands. We landed on Def Leppard. And I can tell you, there's more than one Van Halen 3 in their catalog. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, but there is definitely a Van Halen 3 in their catalog. So what albums are we reviewing throughout the 12 months for Def Leppard? We're going through On Through the Night, High and Dry, Pyromania, Hysteria, Slang, Adrenalize, X, Yeah, Def Leppard, self-titled, which was the last one they released. What else we got? You missed Euphoria. Euphoria, I missed, and Songs from the Sparkle Lounge. That was oh, the other right. one. Uh, so those are the 12 records we're going to go through. we got a guest with each one of them. And to kick us off for On Through the Night, we brought along a special guest, our old friend, the co-host from the Decibel Geek podcast, and the Rockin' Pod guru himself, Chris Sinzak. Chris, what's going on, buddy? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you thinking of me for this topic. And uh, it's been a long time since I've actually gone back and revisited this record. So uh, it was kind of a cool trip down memory lane getting reacquainted with it. And, you know, as I was getting 
guests lined up. It was easy to get, you know, pyromania, hysteria. Chris volunteered for this one. I was like, wow, okay then. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I really was hoping to do slang. I'm just kidding. Uh. <laughs> hey, I think that the earlier Def Leppard albums, it's easy to say amongst our sort of circle of podcaster rockers uh, that were partial to the earlier side of Def Leppard. But I'll be honest, there is some later Def Leppard stuff that I think there's some gems on. Maybe they're not perfect albums. Certainly none of them are high and dry and pyromania, but I do think there's some good stuff on some of those albums. And I was happy to kind of go through some of that stuff and get reacquainted with it. So I think it'll be an interesting 12 months. And I think we're kicking this off in style. Chris, what's your history with On Through the Night? Yeah, I was trying to think earlier about a lot of bands we remember when we first heard a particular record. I don't really remember when I first heard On Through the Night. I know with Def Leppard, my first exposure to them, I was one of the lucky kids on my block that had MTV in the early days. So I do remember seeing the video for Photograph when it was new, but that's by Romania. And that was my very first exposure really to hard rock because Quiet Riot, Come On, Feel the Noise, Twisted Sisters videos. Uh, those were like the first things that kind of opened the door on through the night. I honestly probably didn't get into it until I'm going to say late eighties, early nineties. You know, obviously if you grew, you know, if you were around when hysteria came out, you couldn't ignore it because it was in your face all the time. And, and really Def Leppard kind of became the biggest band around at that time. But, uh, I remember revisiting a lot of the early stuff, probably I'm going to say 88, 89 is probably when I first heard this record. So your entry point for Def Leppard was Pyromania then, yes? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I didn't rush out and buy it after seeing the photograph video because I was still a kid at the time and I was still kind of a pop-oriented kid. I remember the video for Photograph and I remember liking the song, right? but I was still like into Michael Jackson and pop stuff at sure. the time. But yeah, Twisted Sister was kind of the first anthem rock that I kind of got into. But it wasn't really until Hysteria that Def Leppard really fully came onto my radar. I remember photograph i guess that was the first exposure i had to them sunny how about you what was your uh your history with this record i should say do you even have a history with this record yeah i have a history with def leppard all the way around it's one of the bands i own everything partially because i'm a completist but uh, my history is somewhat similar to chris's i get in i'm getting into music like 84 ish right so summer mtv so photograph fool in rock of ages is on all the time but you got to remember, they didn't have an album between 83 and 87, and I'm starting to buy albums in 84. So since they don't have anything new, my first album that I buy from Def Leppard is Hysteria. And that's the first tour I saw. Mm -hmm. And then once I get, you know, see them live two or three times, I'm like, all right, this band is awesome. So then I start going backwards and I got Pyromania first. I got High and Dry second. I was all the way in. And I remember the first time I got this album, I'm like, what in the hell is this? <laughs> right? Because it didn't sound anything like I had heard already because, you know, I'm used to the polish. Right. And this didn't have that. <laughs> and I'm like, eh. I remember buying the cassette probably. I might have had the CD by that time. I'm not sure. I have a CD of it in the archives now. So maybe I did buy the CD first. But I probably listened to it once and said, meh. And threw that in the corner and kept listening to high and dry Parmenian hysteria instead. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. So my history with Def Leppard and with this album in particular starts out in 
Krang magazine and the metal magazines, I started reading about this band, Def Leppard, from the UK. I was very into the new wave of British heavy metal at this time and was just, you know, kind of taking in all the bands and they were lumped in with those bands at the very beginning. But On Through the Night definitely was not a first listen for me. I came in on Pyromania because after I'd read all the stuff that I'd read, it was right around the time of the release of Pyromania. So I was excited to get Pyromania. I got Pyromania when it first came out. <laughs> Did not leave my cassette deck forever. I mean, I can remember skipping school just to stay home and listen to that record. I was so blown away by it. So I went backwards from that point and got high and dry, I think. And then on through the night, I kind of got all the the first two records uh, at the same time because that was all that was available. So I had those three records. And then I saw Def Leppard on the Pyromania tour right after they started Headline in America, after they had left the opening slot from Billy Squire's tour, I think is what they came off of. So that was my history with the uh, band and my experience with this record. Wait, so you saw them on the Pyromania tour? He's old. Remember, he's 63. I've fallen and I can't get up. Damn, he's old. <laughs> yeah, I sure did. I saw him on the Pyromania tour right down in the barricade. It was a three-band bill. It was uh, an act called John Butcher Access, and he was basically Jimi Hendrix reincarnated, <laughs> and Crocus on the Headhunter tour, and Def Leppard headlining. Met Steve Clark out back by the buses, got him to sign my ticket stub and took a picture with him real quick. And uh, that's my history and my uh, memory of that concert. Blew me away. They were fantastic. So yay me. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't see, I didn't see Def Leppard live till 2003 or four. Oh, my God. So you missed the round and all that. I'm telling you, oh. Def Leppard was one of the best acts to see in the late 80s. It was amazing. Especially when they had Tesla opening up in the heyday uh, in those round settings uh, for Hysteria. I remember seeing them at the Arco Arena. It, it must have been 90% women. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> they played two sold-out nights here at, uh, at the Om what was the Omni uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, uh, when they filmed part of the some of the videos at the Omni too, I believe. Uh, maybe I don't remember at, at, on the Hysteria tour. I think it was like a mix of McNichols Arena in Denver and uh, the Omni in Atlanta. Yeah, I was at one of those shows for sure. Yeah, I remember all the all the girls loved Def Leppard when I was in school. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, so a quick history on Def Leppard. I mean, pretty much anybody that's listening to this podcast in most cases is going to know who Def Leppard is. But I think it's important just to kind of quickly say, how did they get to where they're at, right? So they released this, I want to say it was a four-song EP on their own record label, and it garnered a bunch of interest. They ended up signing with Polygram, uh, Mercury Records, and they released this first album on through the night and it was lumped into that new wave of british heavy metal because it was around uh 1980 uh which is sort of 80 81 82 is the peak of the new wave of british heavy metal you agree with that chris i agree with that but i uh i'll take issue a little bit with them being a new wave of british heavy metal band but we'll get into that as we talk about the record. Right. But you do agree that they were listed with the new wave of British heavy metal bands, right? They were lumped in, but I don't know that they were really a true band from that group, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's a timing issue, but we'll definitely talk about that. Before we get too far into this uh, episode, Chris, is there anything you want to share with us uh, about uh, Rock and Pod this year? Any latest information? Nope. <laughs> I'm, just uh, I'm still working out a venue and a date, uh, so I can't really, I don't have anything to announce as of this recording. Hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have something to announce, but as of today, still working on it. Well, you knew you knew I had to ask, right? Yeah, no, I don't mind you asking. I just wish I had something more I could say, but I don't. <laughs> there is going to be one? That's the plan. Um, you know, obviously, that's contingent on, you know, getting the place we want and the dates we want and stuff. I, I will say it's, I'm confident it will not happen in August. It's going to happen later this year. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. So, some basic facts about this album. On Through the Night by Def Leppard was the first debut album on a major label for the band. It was released in March of 1980. It was recorded December 1979 at Starling Studios in Ascot, Berkshire, which is England. Length of the record is 4347, labels Vertigo in the UK and Mercury in the US and Canada. The producer is Tom Allum better known as Colonel Tom Allum. The thing I know him most for is Screaming for Vengeance and some other Priest records. He's done a ton of stuff, but that's the most uh, biggest record for me right uh, up front. And then the record was certified platinum in 1989, and it charted number 51 on Billboard's album charts. The album cover features a guitar on a flatbed truck coming from the moon. What's your opinion of this album cover, Chris? Eh, it's okay. I don't know. There's a lot of people that rave about it, but I, I think it's kind of corny myself. But, you know, it was 1980s. What do you expect? I couldn't really find a whole bunch of information on this album cover other than the fact that maybe it was a nod to Deep Purple's Space Trucking. Not that it looks like it, any of the albums from Deep Purple. It's just basically Space Trucking. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't really get that. I think it looks cool. It's sort of an iconic album cover at this point. You recognize it, but I don't know. I mean, like you said, it's 1980. Uh, so I don't think it's that bad. Uh, I've certainly seen way worse around that time period. Sonny, what's your thoughts? I like the drawing. <laughs> you could easily say it was a cheese wheel and not the moon. I guess it could be the moon. I don't know. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Oh, howdy, partner. Time for timer. Do you ever get that hungry feeling after school? Boy, I do. I'm so hungry, I could eat a wagon wheel. When I'm slow on the draw and I need something to chaw, I hanker for a hunk of cheese. When my ten-gallon hat's a feeling five-gallon flat, I got something planned, which is little cheese sandwiches. What we don't know is, you know, is this a Steve Clark idea? Because he was the one playing the Les Paul. Because anything you saw Pete play normally was an explorer. Yeah. So is it a Steve idea? We don't know that. But that shirt that Joe is wearing on the back cover. And the poodle hairdo? Oh, my God, dude. Wow. <laughs> my wife was in lust with that guy for a while. She obviously had not seen that shirt. Big difference in uh, image from Joe Elliott over the years. <laughs> yeah. I I'm guessing that the shirt was a leftover from uh, the bitter end of disco, maybe. <laughs> Very maybe. bitter. 
<laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean, look, they didn't have all the uh, special effects and graphics that they're able to work with these days to make album covers. So uh, you get what you get from a low-budget standpoint for a brand-new band. So, I like it better than the High and Dry cover. Oh, uh, yeah, we'll get there. But, yeah, I, I'm <laughs> with you on that. So <laughs> it's okay. That's a, That's where we'll get with this. So let's get into the track by track, Sonny. All right. So we're going to start with Rock Brigade. And before I hand it over to Chris, here's one good that comes from it immediately and one not so good, but I can't really blame it because it's really the timing. The good is the backing vocals are a hint of what's to come, right? Like those backing vocals, if they wanted them there in every song right from the beginning, they were there. So that's kind of cool. The not so good. Joe has not found his voice yet. Dude, this, I like this song, but his vocal lacks a lot of punch. Do you agree with that at least? So I went through this and I basically wrote down notes and kind of did my own little mini review of this. I mean, I do like this record. Let me start by saying, I don't think there's a bad song on this record. I think they're all decent songs. Some of them are great, but yeah, some of the notes I wrote completely echo what you just said. So my first note on Rock Brigade is the vocals seem buried in the mix. Mutt Lang would wind up bringing Joe's voice way out in the front after this record. But also, what I mentioned in, in one of the songs later on, it sounds like he ha- he's inexperienced and he hasn't quite learned where to go with his voice yet. I think the riff on this song is very, very good. And the gang vocals are real tame compared to what Mutt Lang would wind up bringing out of them later. Um, but you get that they they already had that in mind even before Mutt Lang came on board. So I do give the guys credit for that. The hand claps are a little corny, but it definitely has Tom Allum's production stamp on it. You know, similar to like British Steel. It's that very dry kind of metal sound. I don't know that it works as well for Def Leppard as it did for Judas Priest. I'll echo this through the whole record. The guitar solo on this song by Pete Willis is awesome. If you're a guitar nerd, this album you're going to love because there's so many great guitar solos on this record. Good way to start off the record. I, I have no complaints about it other than the production could have been a little better. Yeah, Steven, uh, first song, first album, you're hearing Pete Willis right out of the gate. 
you know, there's no shirtless Phil Collin yet until later years. I know you missed that, but uh, what do you think about Rock Brigade? <laughs> well, this is the, you know, for a lot of people, this is the first song they're going to hear by this band, right? I don't love Tom Allen's production on this record. I think it's a bit, I don't know, muddy to me. It's not quite crystal clear as some of the other stuff he's done, like with Judas Priest and, and so on. I think that in part, the production is why with this record, they're sort of lumped into that new wave of British heavy metal sound. I mean, there's some bands from that era that sort of sound this way. I like the song. I think the song is good. I agree with what Chris said. There are some amazing solos on this record. I agree with what you say, Sonny, whereas you can definitely hear hints of what's to come with some of the backing vocals and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, it's a good album opener. It's a rocker, right? Right out of the gate. It's written by all the guys in the band. Yeah, it's good. So we go to the second track, Hello America. (laughs) Sonny loves this this, song. I can already tell. (laughs) This thing should be named Hello California because basically all he talks about are California cities. California people don't even know where San Pedro Bay is, to be honest with you. And somehow (laughs) Joe knows. But it's anthemic and it's cheesy, right? Yeah, I well, I mean, in, in a, the riff and the vocals, I think, are good on this song. The lyrics are very cheesy, especially also the synthesizer that goes on through the song. But it was 1980. And also, one overarching element we have to remember when you're listening to this, these guys were kids at the time. I mean, Rick Allen was, what, 15 when he recorded this record? So, I mean, these are kind of children that are doing this album. And as children, I mean, it's an amazing record. I, I think... The only time this song works for me is in that god-awful VH1 movie they did about Def Leppard. Have you guys seen that? <laughs> yes. I-, I thought that movie was okay. you got to be kidding me, Sonny. It was fine. It was horrendous. <laughs> I-, I watched it not that long ago. Oh, boy. All right. We're, yeah, me and Sonny are going to have a lot of differing opinions today. I can already tell. Um, <laughs> the, the solo by Steve Clark is great. The gang vocals, again, you can hear what they were kind of going for that they would end up doing with Mutt Lang, but it's not quite there just yet. And I love Tom Allen. I love what he did with Judas Priest. He's, he did some work with Sabbath, but not the right producer for them. Like, you know, and I did, obviously, I had to go to high, listen to High and Dry after I listened to this just to hear the development. And God, it's like night and day. But yeah, this song's corny, but it's okay. It's still not a bad song, and it's coming from the perspective of guys that were teens dreaming about coming and touring America. So I I, I give it up for the innocence of it.
yeah, age-wise, uh, as Chris said, Rick is like 15, 16. You got Savage, Pete, and Steve that are all around 20, and Joe's the oldest at 21. Steve and <laughs> Joe, Joe said in an interview that he was writing the lyrics as he was watching either Kojak or Starsky and Hutch. So, oh, dude, he thought America was Kojak and Starsky and Hutch. Well, back in those days, I'm sure they've had very limited use to what they could see over uh, the pond. Look, the 15, 16-year-old Stephen hated Hello America. Uh, <laughs> after Rock Brigade, it goes into Hello America, and I just thought it was super cheesy, super poppy, super not what Rock Brigade was really to me. Now, give it a lot of years, the 55-year-old Stephen doesn't hate Hello America so bad. It's a little cheesy, definitely for sure that. But look, like you said, it's coming from the perspective of uh, a British rock and roll band that knows that the key to their success is conquering America. Everybody wants to conquer America because that's what's going to be the big deal, right? So I get it. I understand. I don't think the song's so bad these days, but it is a little bit poppy and a little bit cheesy for me. So we go from rocking to a little cheese to a little different with Sorrow is a Woman. And, you know, there's some different feels to these songs, but probably doesn't surprise us because Pete was a Travers fan and a Priest fan. Steve Clark was more of a Zeppelin guy. Rick was like into Queen. Joe was into Mata Hoopoy, Alice Cooper, Sweet and Slade. So it's all kind of mixing in. There's kind of different things happening. But Chris, the song is almost like it has a gypsy feel, right? Yeah, this one is uh, an example of why I don't really buy into them being a new wave of British heavy metal band. It's way more melodic than a lot of the bands of that genre. And I think, honestly, over, overall, Def Leppard at their heaviest were a hard rock band. And by most accounts, a rock and roll band that would later even be labeled pop rock. This has more of like a 70s feel. This song would feel comfortable on an REO Speedwagon album, in my opinion. And I'm not saying that as a, as a diss. Outside of the solos, which I think are fantastic, I, I this is what I call killer filler. It's it is a filler track, but it's good stuff. And also the extended instrumental parts are, you know, that, that's something you wouldn't find on their later album. Like you would never hear that on Hysteria or any of those or Adrenalize or any of those band those albums, because Mutt Lang would wind up tightening a lot of these things up. But you know, this is kind of the looseness of the early Def Leppard. So I like this song, and it's it's kind of an interesting case study in what they were before. Everything got tightened up with Mutt Lang coming into the picture. But yeah, it's it's definitely a different sound for them.
Stephen, I agree with Chris saying it's filler. I don't agree that it's killer. Oh, come on. Joe's melody is boring in this song. So if it's not for Rick Allen on this song, I wouldn't have listened to it. Well, let me just say, and I'll just say this before we get too far in. Joe Elliott is definitely not the star of this record. Honestly, at this point in time, I think Joe Elliott's the weak link of the band. And I think Tom Allen realized that, which is why I think the guitars take center stage on this record. And Joe's voice is buried a lot in the mix. The vocals are kind of just an addition on this uh, album, but you know, obviously Mutt Lang would change that and make him a better singer and bring him out front. But I think the guitars are the centerpiece of this album. Yeah, and Stephen Rick Allen even said they used to get drunk every night and still try to record. So it was like young kids trying to be musicians, and that's kind of how the record sounded. I don't know, Rick's not, you know, that's probably a little harsh for this record. But Sorrow is a Woman, you like the song? Sorrow is a Woman. I prefer to think that Sorrow is not having a woman. I like the groove in this song. I do agree with Chris. It reminds me of sort of a 70s classic rock song, but I dig the groove in it. You know, I don't mind this song. I think it's killer filler. I'll agree with that term. Yeah, it's not bad for me. So then we go from Sorrow is a Woman to It Could Be You. And, you know, to me, it's got a cool riff. It's got great pace. It's got great guitar solos. I guess I should just ask Chris, what do you, 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 you think? <laughs> I do like this song. I, I think the guitar riff at the beginning is really cool. It, this almost has a Y&T sound to it. And I don't know if Def Leppard was influenced by Y&T, but I wonder if they were. Uh, you can tell Joe has not found his voice. There's elements of, of this where you hear his inexperience. Once we get to this track on the record, I'm like, God, I forgot how good Pete Willis was as a player. He wouldn't be described as like a shredder, but he kind of had like a Jimmy Page on steroids style. So you had a little bit of the 70s bluesy rock thing going on with him. I like this song a lot. I love the chugging chords on the solo as as well as the tempo change. I think it's a pretty interesting song. I, I like this one a lot.
and Stephen, we're talking about Joe a lot. Even Joe said, and, you know, a lot of people love this record, but it's not exactly Van Halen or Boston's first record, is it? And I don't know if Joe Elliott can compare his first record to Van Halen's. We're not, a, we're not confusing Joe Elliott for Brad Delp anytime soon. <laughs> not anytime soon. <laughs> uh, Stephen, what do you think? No, this is uh, Def Leppard is the quintessential band that builds over time with this first album. And this first album for them is just an entry point into the game with definite splashes and definite bright spots. But the key players in this record are definitely the two guitar players and really Rick Allen a very, very young Rick Allen because some of these grooves are really good and it could be you is another one. So Sorrow is a woman and it could be you back to back have those nice groove feels for me. Uh, and I think they're just both very reminiscent of classic 70s rock tunes. And I think they're influenced by some of that stuff that was happening at the time, maybe the Thin Lizzies and the um, uh, Zeppelins and just different bands such as that coming through on some of these riffs and some of these grooves. So it could be you works for me. So next we have Satellite. This is where I felt a production issue, right? Because there, you know, there's a little bit of a production issue. It is, it, it is 1980, I get it. But this song, for some reason, feels a little more garage band. It's almost like they just pulled a demo off and threw it on tape. But this is where I hear both Steve and Pete doing their best Glenn and KK from Priest. Chris, what did you think about Satellite? Yeah, my first note on this one is Judas Priest Light. It has like the, a, a kind of a sound like they were going for the Judas Priest thing, but it didn't quite work. I don't know. This song doesn't do a lot for me. It's still not a bad song. There's some cool guitar parts. I like the muted picking on the verses, but uh, it's just okay for me. I mean, it's uh, the biggest gripe I have about this song is it's missing a good chorus. The chorus is terrible on this song. The acoustic stuff that's going on in the pre-solo was great. And, um, of course, Pete Willis plays another great solo with the wah-wah. So um, great guitar playing, but not necessarily the greatest song.
Yeah, Stephen, uh, kind of similar to what Chris said. Like, it just doesn't feel like the melody or the lyrics are finalized yet. It's not the worst chorus for me because that's coming up, but this one's not great either. Well, you mentioned that this song feels a little bit demo-y to you. Uh, I would say that it's not just this song. It's this record in general. It's what I was referring to earlier, which is there's somewhat of a muddy sound to this record. I don't know whether it's of the time production-wise, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, certainly I've heard other bright sounding records from this time period satellite's not my favorite song by any stretch of the imagination on this record but it's not that bad it's okay just all right for me so then we get to the last song on the first side when the walls came tumbling down and chris this song is unlistenable oh come on the best part of this song is dave cousins talking that's about it oh you're wrong all right how do you not like this song oh my god it's bad no, I'll uh, I'll partially agree with you. I don't think it's the greatest song on the record. I mean, when I when I heard Dave Cousins stuff at the beginning, I was like, "What is this? An Iron Maiden song?" Because it's like all myth- mythological and everything, and it does have the galloping riffing that you would expect from uh, Iron Maiden. It makes you wonder if they were influenced by them. I'm not a prog fan, but this sounds like a stab at prog. It's kind of yes light. I don't know. I like Steve Clark's solo. I like none of these songs. I will skip. I'll just say I, there's not really a bad song on the record, but this one leans towards the bottom for me. On the first day of the first month, in some distant year, the whole sky froze gold. Some said it was the aftermath of the radium bomb, while others told of a final retribution, a terrible revenge of the gods.
Stephen, I tell you that if any woman who loves pour some sugar on me heard this, it would tear up every leopard poster they got. Uh, well, I'll say this. So from my viewpoint, imagine coming from pyromania to high and dry to this. And I got through Rock Brigade, Hello America, SARS Woman, It Could Be You, and Satellite. When I got to this one, I was kind of like, WTF, what is up with this tune? Uh, yeah, so this is definitely not a favorite of mine. It's bearable. I wouldn't call it unlistenable. Yeah, this song just really doesn't work for me. And I agree with with Chris and saying, and there's a couple of stabs at their brush with Prague, we'll call it Prague, Prague, Prague Light, whatever you want to call it, where they're definitely influenced by something other than the majority of the other stuff. And so I don't know what was going on. If history serves me, When the Walls Come Tumbling Down is one of the older songs in their catalog, uh, meaning that it was around from really the early stages of the band. I don't know who Andrew Smith is. He's one of the co-writers, but he's one of the outside guys on this record. So maybe he's an old member of the band or something. I like John Mellencamp's version better. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'm with you on that. So yeah, When Walls Come Tumbling Down, Def Leppard style, I don't love it. Yeah, if they paid Andrew Smith any money, ask for a fucking refund. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, um, harsh. All right. So we will go to first song, side two, with Wasted. We're back to the rockin'. This is good stuff, right, Chris? This is by far my favorite track on the record. And it's one of my favorite Def Leppard songs of all for their whole catalog. The riff is definitely reminiscent of Judas Priest. So I don't know if Tom Hallam had an, an effect on that. The lyrics are cool. It's, it's definitely a simple song, but sometimes that's the best route to go. Just go simple with it. Rick Allen's drumming is great on this song. I love the breakdown that he does before the solo. True uh, trivia that no one really cares about. I actually ripped off this guitar riff for a song for my own band in the 90s, and no one knew knew the difference. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Steven, there's a story where uh, Clark gets off the bus. Something was in his head. He, like, bursts into the room, doesn't talk to anybody. He's like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, picks up his guitar, starts playing, and that was the riff. It's a great song. So, yeah, at the beginning of this episode, you heard me play a clip from Joe Elliott talking about Wasted being his favorite song on this record. And he tells the story that you just basically told, which is Steve Clark showing up late to rehearsal, as he always did, according to Joe, and told everybody basically, shut up, don't talk to me, don't talk to me, straps on the Les Paul, and plays this riff and floored everybody with that. This riff is amazing and definitely one of my favorites off this record and definitely just a killer tune. If they gave me a record full of this, this record would be one of my favorite Def Leppard records for sure. This is just a killer riff, man. I A lot of times what I would do is skip when the walls came tumbling down just to flip the tape over and start with this. So one of my favorites.
So then we go from Wasted to Rocks Off, another great riff. Chris Mutt gets a hold of this song, and oh my God, this thing would have been a hit. Well, you know, and I mentioned if if it could be you sounded a little like Y&T, then this one sounds exactly like them. Do, do, am I alone in this where this sounds like a Y&T song to me? It's older Y&T, but uh, it's hard yeah. for me to hear it because it's not Menachetti singing, so I can't ever hear it that way. But I could totally hear Dave Menachetti singing this song. I doubt they were an influence because Y&T was really only big in the Bay Area, but but I could hear it. The, the twin guitar work from Pete Willis and Steve Clark is great on this, and Rick Allen has kind of a boogie beat that he brings on this song. It's, it's a great track. I like this song a lot. Stephen, my only problem with this track is there's just too many musical interludes, right? There's not enough like lyrics and melody. For me, this is a one-two punch on the second side that I absolutely love. Rocks off moves and it grooves. And this is one of the tunes that was on the original EP that Def Leppard put out on their own that got them all the attention. Although on the EP, it was called Get Your Rocks Off. But same thing, same song, same riff. And I dig this tune. I mean, I'm not sure why they did the live kind of crowd noise at the beginning but that, i don't like that i don't i don't exactly like that either i don't know what the point of it is because we all know it's not live it's as live as kiss alive <laughs> yeah, probably but yeah it's it's just uh i don't know but i love the song and i love the riff so then the next song we go to is it don't matter and you got a trifecta of great riffs and it just shows you the guitar players are absolutely the heroes of this album, Chris. Yeah, I think this sounds more like a latter era Def Leppard tune. I think it, this would have fit right in on Pyromania if it had a bigger chorus. The only my gripe I have about those chorus isn't that great, but it's kind of a straight-ahead rocker with a really good riff. I love Pete Willis's wah-wah guitar solo on this, and um, it makes me wonder what the band would have sounded like if he had stayed in the band. Phil Collin, I'm not taking anything away from him, but 
I don't know, man. Pete Willis and Steve Clark together were a really good combination. I do wonder what they would have churned out if, if he had stayed in the band. The riff does kind of remind me a little bit of Life in the Fast Lane by the Eagles. Did anybody else pick up on that? No, I didn't. I didn't until you just said that. But yes, I can totally hear that when you mention that. Yeah, that's interesting that Chris mentions that because, Stephen, I was going to say there is some magic to this song. There's a magic to this song it couldn't place. And maybe that's what it is. This is another song that I would consider, you know, killer filler. I mean, it's a song I like. It's a song that isn't often talked about. For me, side two is really, really strong on this record. It's better than side one. Yeah. I mean, Wasted rocks off. It don't matter. Just really good stuff, really solid stuff. And I'm loving the fact that these songs, this is the way it should be. I mean, these songs are two and a half, three and a half minutes long and done, you know, get to the point and rock and move on. And I, and I love that. I miss that from a lot of bands today. So next, second to last, we got Answer to the Master and Chris. If the Joel Elliott from Make Love Like a Man could tell himself that he wrote a song called Answer to the Master, he would cry. Well, yeah. I mean, that does nothing but embolden this song compared to Make Love Like a Man. Jeez. (laughs) Can we just forget that Make Love Like a Man exists? I'm glad I'm not reviewing that record with you guys. Oh, what a disappointment. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm going to hang up. I love that song and Read My Body. Does Zeus know about this? All right. All right. All right. Let me get back to my notes on this. Man, you guys really threw me for a loop with that one. (laughs) I think I love the twin guitar riff on this. Willis and Clark, as they did, and I don't know if this was a Tom Allen thing, but like he definitely kind of pushed them towards look at Glenn and KK and what I did with them with Judas Priest. Let's do that. But this song actually has a Sabbathy feel. This might be the darkest song in Def Leppard's catalog. And I know that's not saying much, but it is dark. I don't know if you guys noticed Rick Savage's bass is like way out in the front on this song. So I don't know if he had a part in the production, the drum break and the instrumental breakdown in the pre-chorus is really cool. The solos obviously are great. I always thought the later era solos were well-constructed, but 
they were very constricted. And like the solos on this song and on this album in general feel a lot looser and kind of in the moment, which that might be because of their youth. But Tom Allen, I always got the impression was more of a, you know, and I hate to go back to Kiss, but like with Kiss, Eddie Kramer let the band be the band where Bob Ezrin molded them in his vision. I think that might be the, the case with comparing Tom Allen to Mutt Lang, where Tom Allen was like, I'm going to let you guys be you. Where Mutt Lang was like, no, you do it like this. I think the solos are a lot more honest on this. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a cool song. It almost has like a Dio Sabbath type feel to it to me. Even now that Chris is saying Dio Sabbath, I wrote a note. The song just dragged a little to me, and that's what it was. It's just it's a little sludgier, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I think that's definitely a fair assessment. I actually agree with almost everything that you guys have said. I like the tune. I don't hate the tune, but it is a bit different. It is a, most likely they look. They had to be influenced by some of the stuff around them, especially in their own backyard that was happening at that time. So. How could they not? I like this tune, though. It's okay, but it's definitely a little bit draggier than some of the other stuff on the record. And then we close the album with Overture, a <laughs> seven-minute and 44-second song by Def Leppard. And so I'm like, all right. Oh, my God. I'm like, okay, this was my <laughs> stupid fucking idea. I guess I got to listen to it the whole way. At about the 2.15 mark, when it kicks in, I'm like, all right, here we go. And I was, again, disappointed. So... Chris, I don't know if they're trying to be Kansas, Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull all at the same time. Like, who are they trying to appeal here? Because they ain't going to get no women with this song. I'm, I don't care about them getting women, but I I, I like the experimentation on this song. And uh, did anybody else feel like when the intro started playing, you're like, it sounds like More Than a Feeling by Boston? It sounds just like the intro to More Than a Feeling. It's definitely something you would not hear on later Def Leppard albums. Uh, when the fast part does kick in, it, it's really cool. You know, a lot of twin guitar stuff. 
good drumming by Rick Allen on this one. This song does make sense if you look at the time frame it came out in, because a lot of 70s hard rock records would have this long, epic, you know, ballad or whatever would end the album. So this did fit in with the times. Um, it was a very different time than what you had in the 80s. But uh, if you're a guitar nerd, you have to love the alternating solos between Steve Clark and Pete Willis on this. I think it's perfect for this record. I don't know that I would listen to this song isolated like, well, I have to listen to Overture from on through the night but if i'm gonna listen to the album from start to finish it it works fine for me it's no make love like a man but it's pretty cool
<laughs> so, Stephen, here is nine words that every now 50-year-old woman are glad that happened. Thank God they started writing peppier, radio-friendly songs. <laughs> You're speaking for women everywhere, I see. <laughs> yes, because Overture, Def Leppard would have never sold another album in the 80s. But you're speaking to two dudes, so look, Overture. So this is really a weird tune for me because originally I wrote off Overture as it's a seven-minute song. It's slow. It's a little bit proggy. They're, I, I don't like this song. I hate this song. Originally. Really? Wait a minute. Originally, that was my thought. Upon revisiting this record for this episode that we're doing, I listened to it and I said, you know what? I did not hear everything that I thought originally. And I feel differently about this song having listened to it more recently. I think this song is is really, it's an interesting song for Def Leppard's catalog because this song is another one of the songs that was on the original EP, which is weird because it's so different than what Def Leppard is even on this record. It's different than what they became. It's different than what they were on this record as a whole. It's just a weird song for them. And I hear bits and pieces of Rush in this song. I can so, hear that. Too. So I'm wondering, because, I mean, look, Rush was around. They were doing Bye Toward the Snow Dog at this time. So they were around. I don't know whether they influenced Def Leppard in any way, shape, or form. But I hear bits and pieces of that. I hear bits and pieces of yes. I hear the beginning of what might become some of the vocal harmonies for later Def Leppard records within this song. I just find it to be an interesting song, and I don't hate it nearly what I thought I originally did before I went back and listened to this record. So that's my two cents on Overture. All right. So we talked about the 11 songs. I want to get a top two, bottom two and maybe a final thought. I'll start, and then I'll go to Chris. My top two, It Don't Matter and Hello America. I actually like Hello America, no matter how cheesy it is. My bottom two, boy, there was a lot to choose from, because I only really like five songs on this record. But I'll go with uh, When the Walls Come Tumbling Down and Sorrow is a Woman. And just a final thought, you know, in the end, they're rookies. And on some of these songs, they sound like it. <laughs> there you go, Chris. How about you? Oh, man. I'm on the spot here. I love the record over. Like I said, I don't think there's a bad song on here. There's some stuff where like, you, I mean, you can clearly see they haven't found their way just yet, but I think it, it's still a really fun record to listen to. Wasted. Definitely my number one song on the record. Just the best, one of the best songs the band ever did. Second, second best song on this record. I guess I would say it don't matter. I think that's a, that's a great one. Um, I love the riff on that song. Two worst songs on this record. I guess hello America would have to qualify. And I would not say Sorrow is a Woman. I think you're wrong on that, Sonny. Probably, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it could be you. That'd be my second worst. But I don't know. I, I, I mean, stacking it up against the rest of their catalog, which is really a challenge. I mean, I still think it's a really good record. And Stephen, how about you? Oh, for me, it's almost really, really easy. My two favorites, bar none, are Wasted and Rocks Off. I would definitely take those songs uh, one and two. And my least favorite on this record, or the two that I could lose, would probably be When Walls Come Tumbling Down. And as much as I have changed my opinion of this song, out of the rest of the stuff, I still have to lose Overture, because it's just 
so different than anything else. So if I lose Overture and when the walls came tumbling down, I would have loved to see them replace those songs with stuff that they had around at the time. You know, something like maybe Good Morning Freedom, uh, which was on the B-side of, I think, Hello America. Something like that would have helped bring this album a little bit more together for me and not made it sort of out of place with When Wells Come Tumbling Down and Overture. I think that would have made a little bit more for a stronger record. But overall, look, it's a great first attempt by some rookies coming out of uh, a young band coming out of uh, the UK at the time. It's a good, solid effort for me. So before we close it out, you know, we got to connect it to Kiss. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So it's early 1980. Meanwhile, back at Kiss headquarters, Dynasty Tour ends in December 79. Recording sessions start for Unmasked, which is going to get released in May of 80. Kistry shows us Peter's nowhere in sight. Ace, who knows what the hell he's doing? He's halfway between drugs and alcohol. So as far as we know, on the track we are about to hear, we think these are the musicians. Paul is doing lead vocals, playing guitar, and doing the first part of the guitar solo. Gene is on bass doing backing vocals. Ace is supposedly doing the second guitar solo. Anton Fig is on drums. It's possible Vinnie Ponti is playing keyboards. It's possible he's doing some percussion. It's possible he's doing backing vocals. It's possible Holly Knight is playing keyboards. It's possible Bob Kulick is adding some guitar. Who knows? They might have had Jimi Hendrix too. Whatever. <laughs> but here goes. What makes the world go round?
I can assure you it wasn't Jimi Hendrix. You don't know that for absolute fact. <laughs> you think he faked his death, Sonny? That's right. Okay. <laughs> so what's your opinion of the song? Of what makes the world go round? I like the solo. That's about it. <laughs> really? That's a great song. It's better than it's, half the shit we just talked ah, about. Sounds like a temptation song. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what, you think it's better than what's on fucking On Through the Night? Yes, half of On Through the Night. Easy. You and I are going to have like a fist fight at Rock and Pod. Welcome to my world, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I mean, Make Love I, Like I, a Man would have been the third best song in this album. What the? F- oh, my God. <laughs> I'm amazed that I know a straight male that will admit to that. <laughs> Make love like a man. Good Lord. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, it's a, it's an okay kiss song. I mean, it's not one of my favorites on that record, but it's not bad. Uh, I do love the solo, um, I, but I don't know. Uh, although it's probably one of my favorite songs on Ma- on Unmasked, but it's probably not saying much. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that record. <laughs> it's just so interesting that Kiss is attached itself to basically disco yeah. doesn't realize that's going out but has no clue that the new wave of british heavy metal is coming like they got their head in the sand that much well they jumped on board and with creatures and lick it up yeah but it's a little late but it was too late uh, that's their that's kiss's mo let's jump on a bandwagon way too late yeah. carnival of souls anyone i love that record but god <laughs> they were three years off on that one that's a fact <laughs> <laughs> January is in the books and we kicked it off with on through the night overall. It's a good first effort record for me. It's definitely not my favorite record of their catalog. Sonny, what's your thoughts on the record overall? Like I said, I think it's fine. Uh, you know, they sound like rookies sometimes. Um, there's some hints of what's about to come though, because you get to like a wasted or it don't matter rock brigade. There's like this, now that we know how history played out, it doesn't surprise us where they are when they get to Pyromania. I'll tell you what, though. I think that if they don't hook up with Mutt Lang, they just become another band uh, that dies out in the new wave of British heavy metal. Because I don't know that it would have changed their trajectory with their career. Maybe they would have done it on their own, but uh, who knows? Chris? Well, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I think you know, we have to give props to Mutt Lang as a talent scout because this album is what got his attention to work on High and Dry and then, of course, later Pyromania and Hysteria and all that. You know, he actually heard something in these guys that he wanted to take to the next level, and he did. I know there's a lot of Def Leppard purists that think this is the best thing they ever did. I'm not going to say that. I think what Mutt Lang brought to the table with the next couple of records it was definitely what brought out the best in them. And they could have definitely, you know, kind of fallen out of favor if they had not gotten the right producer. Tom Allen was a good guy to start with. He certainly had cachet at that time. But, um, yeah, they would obviously take off to bigger things after this. But, you know, I it, it was fun to go back and revisit this record. And for a, a bunch of guys that were between 15 and 21, they did a damn good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you visiting with us and catching up with us and sharing your thoughts on this record, man. Well, I I always have fun talking to you guys, and uh, it's like family, so I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So if you're under a rock and you don't know Chris Sinzak, Chris Sinzak's one of the co-hosts of the Decibel Geek podcast. 
We hope that you're already listening to that show, but if not, make sure you seek it out. They release an episode every one or two weeks, I guess. Is that about right, Chris? That's pretty accurate. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Chris also does the Rock and Pod. I guess it's an event. I guess it's a, well, it can't really be called a festival. Uh, it's an expo of sorts that brings together music and podcasting, and it's in Nashville usually every year around summertime. So go to uh, Rock and Pod. What is it? Rockandpod.com? Yep, rockandpod.com. And uh, I'm hope, hopefully by the time you hear this, we'll have some updates for you. There you go. You can always find information on that. Uh, and just keep listening to the Grown Up Rock podcast because whenever there's changes in Rock and Pod, we usually communicate those to our listening audience. So we appreciate each and every one of you guys for coming with us on this ride. We hope you enjoyed Def Leppard's catalog throughout the year of 2022 uh, because there's going to be some interesting guests and some interesting opinions on these records, especially when we get into some of the later records. Sonny Pooney. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to have another great year of looking at some great albums. I mean, Def Leppard is one of the best you know, rock bands of at least my generation. I don't know, you know, Stevens, the generation before me, I guess. Um, <laughs> the mamas anyway. and the papas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how they mature over time. And they mature fairly quickly. And I'm with you guys. If they don't run into much, it's not only timing, but it's you got the right guy. Now you could always also blame Mutt on they could have had another four or five more albums if they could have actually got one done in less than four years. But, you know, that's beside the point. That's it. Once again, thanks for listening. And we will talk to you guys next week. See ya. Later. See ya. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. 
or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 